before you and we ask that you come near to us, that you will fill us with the Holy Spirit, that you will fill Alex with the Holy Spirit as he preaches, God, that you will just fill him with your words, that we will hear and be able to commune with you through this message, God, that you will allow our hearts to change from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, and that we can live and love more like you each day. God, strengthen us today. In your name we pray. You can be seated. How many of you have heard the story that if you put a frog in a pot of cool water and you slowly turned up the heat, he won't jump out and he'll just boil alive? Anybody hear that? A couple of people. Yeah, I've heard that too. That's not true. That's fake. Like, scientists have proven if you put a frog in water, if it gets too hot, it's going to jump out. How many of you have heard that blood is blue in your body and turns red when it touches the air? Yeah, I've heard that too. That's not true. That's not realistic. Um, how many of you have heard that dogs only see in black and white? Yeah, me too. That's also not true. Um, if you put a frog in a pot of water, once the water becomes too warm, he jumps out. Blood is red in your body. It turns a deeper shade of red when it's exposed to oxygen. Dogs actually see in multiple colors, not all the colors that we see in but the cones in their eyes allow them to perceive more colors than just black and white. Just because you've heard something doesn't mean it's true. Just because you've heard things a lot doesn't mean they are true. And you say, okay, Alex, that's nice, why do I care? Well, we have to be careful to not believe everything we hear because sometimes things get repeated over and over again. They get repeated so often they begin to sound true even if they're not. And this isn't limited to scientific things. Sometimes this happens with spiritual things. We hear the same thing repeated over and over. We're like, that's true. I've heard it a lot, so it must be true. Open up your Bibles or your Bible apps to Matthew chapter 5. Over the summer, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the densest collection of Jesus' teachings in the Bible. This is where Jesus outlines what it looks like to be kingdom people people who swear allegiance to him as king, people who are his disciples, his apprentices. This is where he explains what it looks like to live and love like he did. Uh, most scholars believe the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' go-to teachings as he traveled around and he healed people. He would give some presentation similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in Luke chapter 6, for instance, a third of that sermon in Luke chapter 6 that he delivers on the plains uh, is the exact same material found here. So this is, seems to be Jesus' go-to teachings that he repeats as he travels around and he presents the good news of his kingdom and him as the coming king. So let's see what he had to say about hearing spiritual things that aren't always true. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You have heard that if you leave a frog in a pot, he'll boil alive, right? No. He says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. 
You've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you can make, cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. You've heard it said. But I say unto you. That's what Jesus said over and over again in this passage. And I wonder what we've heard in churches, online, or from our friends that Jesus would refute. I often hear people say things, they're like, well, you know Jesus said this. I'm like, Jesus never said that. In fact, Jesus often said the opposite of that. Just because someone puts a little line and writes Jesus after it, it doesn't mean it's something that he said, right? There's sometimes people are repeating things and saying things that Jesus actually taught the opposite of. Here, Jesus is taking popular teachings from the Pharisees, and he's revealing that they've missed the point. What they say sounds spiritual, but it actually misrepresents the character and nature of God. And Jesus is going to talk about here in this passage about several areas of sin. Now, sin is the selfish, destructive parts of us that cause us to say and do and think things that hurt ourselves or hurt others or hurt the world that we live in. Last week, I had a health checkup with my doctor. I hate doctors. I didn't want to go, but they're like, if you want to adopt a kid, you have to have a health checkup every year. And so I went. And so the doctor was going through all my stuff. He's like, hey, everything looks really, really good. And then he goes, oh, wait a minute. Your cholesterol is like sky high compared to last year. Good cholesterol is down. Bad cholesterol is up. And he just starts like telling me everything you don't want a doctor to tell you. Like, you're going to die, you fat slob, you know. And uh, I'm like, never going back to this doctor. But no, he starts telling me all this stuff I don't want to hear, but I probably need to hear, right? And so as I was leaving the office, I was like, I could go for a Krispy Kreme donut. You know, what is that about us as humans? He just told me if you keep eating like you're eating and not exercising like you're not exercising, you're going to die. And I was like, I could use a Krispy Kreme donut right now. Why do we do that? Because they're delicious. Because they're delicious, yeah. But there's something about us as humans, right? It wasn't a lack of education. The doctor had just given me all the science to understand why I needed to change the way I eat. But there's something broken in us that desire things that hurt us. When it comes to sin, there's three stages in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Number one is recognizing something is sin. You're like, that's wrong. I probably shouldn't do it. That doesn't mean you stop doing it, too, though, right? Uh, part two, or level two, is stopping doing the sinful thing. But Jesus doesn't want to stop just there. He doesn't want to just simply change behavior. He wants us to get to level three. Level three is becoming a person who no longer wants to do the sinful thing. He wants us to become people who desire what he desires. The Pharisees were content with changing behaviors, even if it never transformed hearts and minds. But what Jesus offers is more than just changing some of your bad behavior. He wants to transform you as a person to make you like himself. 
And Jesus explains that the religious leaders had missed the forest by getting lost in the trees. They were following the letter of the law, but had missed the heart, the intent behind it. Now, I want you to think about yourself for a second. Think about the American church. And where are areas that were technically doing what Jesus asked, but were missing the heart intention behind the command? How many times are, am I going through the motions, but I'm missing the relationship behind the command? I think at the heart of what is broken in American Christianity is that we're technically called Christians, but we're not actually living or looking like Jesus did. So let's jump in and look at some of these subversions of popular teachings that Jesus presented to his audience. First thing, what did he say? Don't, you've heard it say, don't murder, right? That's a good teaching, right? Don't murder people. Um, I remember as kids, we'd get in trouble and we're like, okay, mom, but we didn't murder anybody. You know, like we did something bad, but we didn't murder. Not murdering is a good command. But Jesus goes beyond that to say that his kingdom people, people who are his disciples, apprentices of how he lived and loved, shouldn't even hate someone shouldn't even speak poorly of someone or call them names. If you don't hate anyone, you won't murder them. He's reaching beyond the act of murder to get at the very catalyst of murder, hating another human being made in the image of God. We live today in an age of outrage. People are outraged about everything. And I would love to say it's just people outside of churches. No, some of the most outraged people I know are inside of churches, and they're outraged about everything. And what Jesus is saying here is that's not how kingdom people operate. If you call your brother or sister mocking names, he says, you're in danger of hellfire. Now, it's easy for me to be like murderers. That's a person who deserves hellfire, right? But people who write hateful things about the opposing political party, do they deserve hell too? Jesus seems to think so. Now, scholars disagree about whether Jesus is talking about eternal damnation here or he's making a more cultural reference. The word translated for hellfire here is Gehenna, one of four words that get translated as hell in our English Bible. Gehenna literally means Valley of Hinnon, which was a geographic place. We already have it up. Great job, Landon. It's that circle there. It's that little craggy valley in Jerusalem still today. It's a geographic place. It's a place where worshipers of Moloch sacrificed their children in Jeremiah 731. It's a place considered cursed, where people would dump and burn trash. Archaeological surveys have found old bones and trash and garbage and stuff that's been buried down there. Um, much like we reference Las Vegas as a symbol of, like, vice, some first century writers would use Gehenna to reference judgment and fire. And some scholars have argued that Jesus isn't suggesting that we should live in fear every time we accidentally lose our temper and we call somebody an idiot, but rather we become Gehenna, a dumpster fire, a place of burning and refuge and trash. James, the brother of Jesus, seems to be picking up this theme when he says in James 3.6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. The Greek word that James uses here for hell is once again Gehenna, Valley of Hinnon. Um, so, regardless, Jesus is drawing attention to a human tendency to think of ourselves as pretty good. Like, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm pretty good. But he says the way you talk to people is just as bad as murder. We don't really act like that, do we? The way we post things, the way we make little side comments about people, like, it's not that bad. It's not murder. And Jesus is like, yeah, it 
is. It's the same spirit. The hateful names we call people reveal a spirit of murder. And Jesus says this is so serious. God doesn't want our spiritual service when we have a spirit of murder. It's tainted goods. Jesus instructs us to resolve our human conflict before coming to the altar with a sacrifice. Some of us faithfully serve in our churches, but it is spiritually worthless because of the way we treat and talk about other humans. Man, that's a scary thought. 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Imagine how the world might see the church if we were not known for being people of outrage, but if we were known to be people who never slandered anyone. We never called people names. We never said, you idiot, or you fool, or trash talk someone. We never let hate simmer in our hearts. Instead of being known for outrage, what if we were known for love? That's exactly the kind of kingdom people Jesus wants his disciples to be. That's what he's describing. The church is supposed to be a forward operating base for the kingdom of God. We're supposed to show what it looks like when Jesus rules and reigns as king. The way we talk, the way we post, should be reflective of the extravagant grace and love that we've experienced in Jesus. Now, next, Jesus starts talking about something very normal and everyday, stabbing out your eye and cutting off your hand. You know, everyday stuff. Stuff you run into all the time. Um, occasionally, some self-righteous person will come to me and he'd be like, I take every part of the Bible literally. Do you? And there's usually like this little thing like, I'm better than you, Alex. Um, and I always say the same thing. I take the parts that are literal, literal, and I take the parts that are metaphorical, metaphorical. And it takes hard work and Bible study to recognize which is which. But whenever I reference this passage, they never seem to take this literally because they have their hands in their eyes. Um, Jesus, though, is obviously not teaching that we should maim ourselves to prevent sin. And I think it's very clear he's not doing that. Why? Because Jesus just said murder was something in your heart, not something you do with your hands. It's something that's inside of you, not just something that um, you physically do. Now he's saying adultery is not just something you do with your bodies, it's something you do with your mind. So cutting off your body isn't going to solve the point. He's making a dramatic statement in order to drive home a point. He's not saying, just think how memorable this sermon would be if I cut off my hand right. You'd never forget that. You'd always remember that. You'd be like, remember that crazy guy cut off his hand? I'm not going to do that. But it drives it home. It makes you remember, right? That's exactly what Jesus was doing in his teaching here. He stood up, he's talking to all these people, and he's like, cut off your hand. They're going to remember that because it was a crazy thing to say. But we see his point, right? You, if you could cut off all the sinful parts of your body, guess what? You still have a sinful mind. You'd still have a sinful heart. You and I need someone to do radically invasive surgery of our innermost being. We could cut off all the parts of our body that sin, and guess what? We'd still be sinners. Our souls need operated on, but it's not a surgery that human hands can do. Jesus wants to do invasive surgery inside of you, inside of me, on our souls. Now, we can either cooperate with that surgery, or we can resist it. 
Becoming an apprentice of Jesus and his way of life won't just fix some of your embarrassing moral shortcomings. Like, we all have things in our life and we're like, I don't like this about myself. I know I tend to lie or I know I tend to do this or I tend to overeat. I tend to overshop. I tend to be anxious. I would be, love if Jesus would clean up some of those areas. But then we have other areas of our life where we're like, we're not bad. I don't murder anybody. I'm okay. And Jesus says, no, you have some other stuff, too, that you don't even realize that I need to clean up. Anybody would sign up to have their embarrassing moral shortcomings cleaned up, but Jesus wants to do a complete remodel of who you are. He wants to do invasive surgery and get to the root of our destructive issues. And so as we look at these principles of living and loving like Jesus, we must conclude that a disciple, a student, an apprentice of Jesus' way of life needs to go to radical lengths to guard what they look at and what they long for. A disciple will go to radical lengths to quench lust. Now, lust is desiring something that doesn't belong to you. And you might be like, well, Alex, that's great. I'm glad you're talking about that because there's some people out here who have a porn problem, but I don't have a problem, so, you know, I'm not a murderer. That's somebody else's problem. We all have a lust problem. Because lust is a human problem. Porn is not just naked bodies or erotic images. We can lust after people's bodies, lust after their houses, lust after their families, lust after their careers, lust after their vacation, lust after their adventures. It's called Instagram. That's exactly what Instagram is. You know what FOMO is, right? It's lusting after someone else's life. They got to experience something I didn't. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. What I've found is when I'm not grateful for what I have, I will be envious of what someone else has, A lack of gratitude always leads to lust. Often lust feels like the easy way to medicate a deep human longing for something you need but you don't have. When you try to meet a real need though in the wrong way, you just end up more empty. What we look at, what we long for, what we think we need in order to be happy affects who we become and what we feel. Anytime we reduce people from being a reflection of God's nature and character into something less, We make people into objects to be used instead of people to be served by us. Lust is looking at someone, stripping away everything that makes them human, and in doing so, we become less human ourselves. Now, at this point, a teaching like this from Jesus can quickly make us collapse into shame, but shame doesn't change who we are. It changes what we do. And remember the three stages, like knowing it's sin, stop doing that it's sin, and then not wanting to do it. Jesus wants us to do more than just feel shame so we stop doing something for a little while. He wants us to change who we are. Grace changes who we are, and when we're a different person, we act differently. God's affection for you isn't based on your character. Phew, we can all be happy about that, right? It's based on Jesus' character. But the selfish, destructive actions we take limit how much we get to enjoy the abundant life that Jesus has made available to us through his death and resurrection. Jesus wants his students in his kingdom to find a life without lack, a life where regardless of what they have, they have found contentment in him. When we recognize the thing that will ultimately make us happiest is Jesus, life with him and life like him, then we can be content 
and we won't lust after the things that we think will fulfill us and never, ever do. They just leave us more empty. To paraphrase Dallas Willard, you must ruthlessly eliminate anything that prevents us from living and loving like Jesus. So no, don't take a saw to your hand or gouge out your eye, but there may be areas of your spiritual life that you do need to saw off. There may be areas of your life where you are passionately pursuing, looking for, and longing for something that's never going to satisfy you. We must go to radical lengths to avoid or remove anything that prevents us from living the abundant life and made available to us through Jesus. Why aren't we more like Jesus? Do you ever stop and think this question? Sometimes I think about it. I'm like, why am I not more like Jesus? I've been doing this for a while. Why am I not making more forward progress? Because being a disciple requires discipline, and I want to follow Jesus on vacation. I don't want to follow him to a cross. But there's only one way to become like him, and that's to take up our cross and live in love like he did. Okay, so next Jesus begins to talk about oaths and lies. Have you ever told a ridiculous lie, just so stupid that nobody would believe it? Anybody? A few people. Okay. I tell a lot of ridiculous lies. I don't know. Um, it's a problem I have. I used to tell people in uh, middle school that my, name, my middle name was Xavier. I don't have a middle name, so... People would be like, what's your middle name? I'm like, Xavier. Like Charles Xavier from the X-Men. You know, that one. And uh, so I told everyone my middle name was Xavier, and I went around like that for a while. I was like, you can just call me Xavier. It's my middle name. Um, one year in high school, for the whole year, I just talked with a really terrible British accent. And I told everybody that's how I talked. I had a British accent. We had just moved to a new area, and so no one knew what I sounded like. So I talked with a British accent for the whole year. And people were like, your son came from Britain for some reason, even though all of you don't sound like you're from Britain. And my parents were like, yeah, he's weird. Um, Jesus begins talking here about being honest and keeping our promises. For the student of Jesus' way of life, being trustworthy is not optional. It is essential. When Christians become obsessed with conspiracies and lies, we lose any credibility to tell the world the, about the good news of Jesus. And I think these last two paragraphs here in this passage we read about oaths and divorce are linked. But before we talk about divorce, let me just say, and whenever we talk about an issue like this, there are real people who have suffered and struggled behind every issue we talk about in church. This isn't a theory in a classroom. And for maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here and you've been through a divorce. You've, it's been a, probably a living hell for you to navigate your life through. And I'm sorry for that. And we don't have a time to do a deep dive into everything that Jesus says about divorce, but recognize that marriage and divorce worked a lot differently in the first century than it does today. Women could rarely get a divorce in a male-dominated first century Jewish culture. They were treated like possessions and tossed aside quickly. Divorce was as common as changing your robe in Jesus' day. Jesus' statement was not to make us feel guilty for our shattered marriage today, but was to protect and honor women in his male-dominated society. Sometimes I've seen people pull a verse out about divorce from the Bible, and they make no consideration for a different culture and different time, and they just plunk it down in the modern setting, and sometimes they use that to pour a lot of shame onto people. Because they did everything legally, though, the men in Jesus' time who were getting divorces all the time assumed that they weren't doing anything wrong. Just because it was legal, they thought it was okay. 
They didn't take seriously, though, what they had promised, and in Jesus' day, men flippantly got divorced for the simplest disappointments in their brides. Um, in Jesus' time, there was a really important rabbi who influenced a lot of teaching. His name was Hillel. I think we have a painting of him, Rabbi Hillel. Um, Hillel said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. He lists finding someone more beautiful. You find somebody more beautiful, divorce her. Um, if she burns your food one day, divorce her. If you come home and she doesn't have food already ready for you, divorce her. If she disappoints you in any way, divorce her. This was an important religious leader who influenced a lot of the um, religious teaching in Jesus' day. And Jesus is counteracting this kind of teaching. The men in Jesus' day were chronic divorcers because, remember, women couldn't divorce like that. Only men could. Oaths were cheap, something to be said in the moment to get what you want, but tossed aside as soon as it was convenient. When Jesus expounded on his teaching on divorce in Matthew chapter 19, his disciples were so shocked that they couldn't just leave their wives whenever they wanted. In Matthew 19.10, his disciples said to him, if this is really the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Like, if I can't just get divorced whenever I want, then it's better just not to marry. In short, Jesus is talking to a culture where oaths don't matter. There's something to be said in the moment and easily tossed aside. Jesus is saying that people shouldn't be tossed aside like they don't matter because relationships matter because people matter. When we make an oath, a Christian should be expected to keep it. Our words should hold weight. People should be able to trust what we say. Something that I say all the time is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, moves at the speed of trust. How can people trust us if we don't tell the truth? If we don't tell the truth, people won't trust us, and they'll never believe the good news about Jesus. The disciples of Jesus should practice radical truth. Instead, unfortunately, today, Christians many times have become experts of saying what's expected of us and doing nothing. Our words hold no weight. Our churches have trained us to have the right answers without always taking the right action. Jesus wants followers who follow through on what they said they would do. Remember at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, his criticism of the Pharisees was that they said the right things but had the wrong hearts. He wants his kingdom people to be different. For Jesus, words have weight because words created worlds. If we are to become like Jesus, we must see words as an incredible responsibility. With words, marriages end. With words, wars start. With words, you can make someone's day or you can destroy their life. How do you use words? This is why James once again said, the tongue can wield the fire of hell. How do you use your tongue? Be careful what you say. Being a disciple of Jesus means keeping our word, especially when it's inconvenient or difficult. Our culture has embraced the art of the kind lie. Like, does this outfit make me look fat? You know, like, we're like, uh, how do I say something kind? We lie constantly about why we don't want to do something. People will be like, hey, you want to come out to this? And I'm like, I don't. I'm tired. I'm an introvert. I've used up all my energy. Like, I just want to sit here. And I'm like, well, I actually have a haircut. And you like, I go into the bathroom and I cut off one piece of hair. And I'm like, you know, like we come up with these ridiculous lies. We lie constantly about why we don't want to do something or why we changed our mind or why we failed to do what we promised. Our natural cultural response when threatened is to lie. The people of Jesus should be a community of radical truth tellers. And I believe the more we lie, the more casual we become with it, the more likely we are to accept lies as truth. 
Neuroscientists at the University College of London conducted experiments around lying. And when a person was told to lie, there was increased activity in the amygdala. However, as they continued to lie, this activity lessened and lessened. And Dr. Neil Garrett, one of the leading scientists in this study, theorized this, that our amygdala signals our brain when an immoral act is being committed. With repeated lying, this signal gets lessened and lessened. So the more we lie, the less likely we are to pick up or um, uh, to, to realize that someone is lying to us. And so we're more easily deceived the more we lie. Lying causes us to become chronic liars, which makes us be easily lied to. What does the Bible call the enemy, the Satan? The father of lies. But it calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth who guides us into all truth. When we lie, we reflect the Satan, the devil, the accuser. When we tell the truth, we reflect Yahweh, the one true God. When we post a lie, we're working for the devil. The problem is, we often prefer an easy lie rather than a hard truth. The problem is, we often have lied so much to protect ourselves, we've numbed ourselves to spot lie as a, lies as a deception. So, as we come to the end, you have heard it said, but Jesus says to you. What has Jesus said to you today? What did you hear? What do you need to do because of what you have heard? Who can you tell so that they can help you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your teachings. They're, they're hard teachings because we want to keep things at surface level and you want to go down deep. You want to change not just some of our behaviors that people see. You want to change the heart, the soul, the very nature of who we are. Lord, as we model our lives on yours, as we live in love like you, as we come to you and make you our Lord and Master, our Savior, you begin to change things. And God, I pray that we don't resist that change. We embrace it by embracing your way of life, by inviting you in to begin to change the desires of our heart. Lord, help us to live and love like you. I pray all these things like I believe you would.